Return to your seats, if you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 19, which you have one of the red Bibles. Luke 19 is on page 878. As we continue our way through the book of Luke, this morning we come to Luke 19, verse 11 through verse 27, the parable of the ten minas. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. Luke chapter 19, verse 11 through verse 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, Your mina has returned, has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, Are you, you, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I've kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we ask each week and we ask now, that you would enable the preaching of your word to be done in power. May it be nothing less than a demonstration of the Spirit of God working in our midst. But we also pray this morning that you would help us to hear. Father, we want to be affected. We want to be changed. If there are areas where we need to be convicted, we want to be convicted so that we might repent and grow. If there are areas where we need to be corrected, we want to be corrected. Areas we want to be encouraged. Father, would you use your word this morning to do all that you intend for the good of your people and the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back a number of chapters ago, we read in Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, it may not feel like it over the last 10 chapters as we've looked at Jesus' teaching and ministry, 
But over the last 10 chapters, we've been on a journey with Jesus, following him as he's been on his way to Jerusalem. The next time we pick up in Luke 19.28, you'll note it's about the triumphal entry. That is, Jesus in 19.28 gets to Jerusalem and enters into the city. So our text this morning is the text right before he enters Jerusalem, when he's right on the verge of coming into the city. And something happens as Jesus and his disciples get closer and closer to Jerusalem. The expectation among the disciples begins to arise that something glorious is going to happen. Now, I don't know if Jesus is aware of what's going on with them because he hears their conversation or because he just knows as the Son of God. But as they start reaching Jerusalem, he begins, he knows that they have this expectation that Jesus is immediately going to demonstrate his kingdom. Now, we can understand why they might think this. The Old Testament promised that God would send his Messiah, his king, who would reign forever. He would come through the line of David. That when he came and reigned forever, God's enemies would be destroyed, God's people would be saved, every right would be made wrong, and it would be paradise restored. God would reign through his human king in glory. Not only that, but the Old Testament expectation was that God's promised forever king would reign from Jerusalem. We saw this just a few weeks back when, when Aaron was preaching in 2 Samuel and David came to the throne. The place from which David reigned as God's king was Jerusalem. Now here's what you have then. The disciples already understand that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9 when Jesus had begun to ask them, who do people say that I am? And they were saying different names. Some think you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets. And Jesus turned to his own disciples and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, you are the Christ of God. When Peter said that, you are the Christ, what Peter was saying is, we believe that you're that promised Messiah who's going to reign as God's forever king. So they already have in their minds, we're walking with God's promised Messiah who's going to reign forever and right every wrong. Not only that, they're now getting close to Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, the visions are just going crazy in their heads. They're thinking, no doubt, when we get there, this is going to be exciting. Jesus is going to set up his reign. He's going to lead a revolt against all of God's enemies, including Rome, who is oppressing the Jews. We're going to overthrow them. All of God's enemies will be destroyed. All of his people will be saved. We're going to reign forever with him, and it will be glorious. Jesus, knowing that tells this parable. And interestingly, like Luke has shown us a few times, Luke tells us in verse 11 precisely why Jesus tells this parable. In verse 11, we read, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus tells this parable to correct their expectations. It is true, Jesus one day will return. 
And when he will turns, we will see the full demonstration of his kingdom. He will judge his enemies. He will save his people. He'll right every wrong, and it will indeed be paradise. But at this point, Jesus' disciples needed correcting. And that's what this parable does. Now, when we understand that, there could be a temptation for us to say, well, then I guess this parable is for them. Right? If Jesus tells a parable to correct their expectations, and we're not in that same setting, we're not about to approach Jerusalem, we're not thinking that the kingdom of God was about to come then, so, so we may be tempted to think this was a parable that benefited them, but not necessarily us. But one of the things Jesus does is as he corrects their wrong expectations, he tells them a number of details about reality as we await his return that you and I need to remember as well. There are going to be some things that we're going to look at this parable and you're going to say, I know that already, that's very clear to me. There may be other things that we see in this parable that you think I didn't know, and there's still yet maybe some that you say, I did know that, but if I'm honest, it doesn't dwell in the forefront of my mind. And this parable is helpful for bringing some important truths that I think we as believers need to remember to the forefront of our minds. So I just want to walk through this parable and, and draw four points that I think Jesus makes very clearly from this parable for our sake. The first one is this. There is a time between Christ's resurrection and his return. There is a time between Christ's resurrection and his return. Now, there might never have been a more obvious sermon point that I've made than this one. I mean, we're alive, right? Um, Jesus rose 2,000 years ago. He has not returned yet, obviously. Anybody who can see and, and says, Lee is as tall and thin, right? That's uh, the same kind of obvious reality. We all know this. Why are we pointing it out? Well, I'm pointing it out for a few reasons. One, because this is the point that the disciples needed to understand. They had this wrong. They thought it was all going to happen in Jerusalem. A second reason that I want to point this out is because this is the point that Jesus is going to make in the parable. And I want to teach you the parable. This is one of the first things he says. But the third reason I want to point this out is because some other truths that we need to understand through the parable just don't make sense without establishing this point, that there is a time between Christ's resurrection and his return when he fully establishes his kingdom. The way Jesus tells this is by telling a parable. And here, here's how he begins the parable. He said, verse 12, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, that idea probably doesn't make much sense to us. Again, that's not how we talk. We don't, we don't talk about Remember the last time somebody went into a far land and, 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 and you know, received a kingdom? Right? We don't talk like that. So, so what's he talking about? Well, the idea here is as simply as someone going and being granted the right to reign as king. This happened, for example, with Herod the Great, who reigned over Judea. Herod the Great had to first go to Rome because the Roman Empire was, was over all things, including Judea, including Jerusalem. And so what Herod the Great had to do was he had to go to Rome and be given, granted the right to come back to Israel and reign as their king. So this idea would have been quite common. Perhaps even more fitting for us to have in our minds, especially as we look at this parable, because there's a detail in history that's going to come into play here as well. What's perhaps even more fitting is for us to understand what happened with Herod the Great's son. 
when Herod the Great, when it came time for him to end his kingdom at his death, his son, uh, Archelaus, it was time for him to reign. Well, he had to do the same thing that his father, Herod the Great, did. And so Archelaus went to Rome. But when Archelaus went to Rome to be given the right to reign, those people in Judea did not want him to reign over them. They did not like him. And so what they did was they sent a delegation of 50 people to Rome with him. Those 50 people were going to go, and as Archelaus said, I'm here to receive the right to reign, return to Jerusalem, and reign over Judea as king. Those 50 delegates were there to say, we don't want him to reign over us. What's interesting is that the Caesar at that time made a compromise. And basically, he said to Archelaus, you can go back and, and you can have a bit of authority. You can reign in some ways, but you're not going to get the title king. You're, you have some kind of a probationary status, and we'll see what can happen. Maybe at some point, you'll be deemed king. The reality is it never happened. Now, with that story in our mind then, Jesus tells us this parable about an individual who's a nobleman, a, a man of stature, nobility in the community. He goes off to a foreign land to see if he might be granted the right to come back and reign as king. Now, there are other places, I think, that the parable makes this uh, explicit for us, but it's, also, it's clear just in that reality that there's a delay, isn't there? There's a delay between the time when the nobleman goes off and the time when he returns as king. And in case we've missed it, the nobleman, the individual who's going off in this story, represents Jesus. Now, he's not going to be, this is the case with all parables, you're not going to be able to press every point and say everything about this parable perfectly represents Jesus. Um, for example, Jesus, though he did go away from us, he ascended back to the Father's right hand, he did not wait until he got to heaven to receive the authority to reign as God's king. Actually, that happened at his resurrection, didn't it? Remember when Jesus walked out of the tomb and in Matthew 28, 18, he gathers his disciples to himself? What's the first thing he says to them in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What Jesus says is resurrection is, of course, as God, he's always had authority. But as the God-man, as the God-man, when he walked out of the tomb alive, God had given him the right to reign over the world. He, all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. So in some ways, we might say, don't, don't press every point. Jesus already has authority to reign. He's already reigning over the world at God's right hand. But it is true one day that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he will reign and demonstrate his authority in a way that every enemy will be judged and his people will be saved and so on and so forth. So the first point, the obvious point we all, I think, already knew, we'll just make it explicit. There's a time between when Christ was raised and when Christ is going to return. Now, with that in our mind, it leads us then to these other points. Number two. In this time, we're expected to live faithfully. In this time, that is the time between Christ's resurrection, between his ascension, and between his return, before his return, you and I are expected to live faithfully. We see this in the text as well. As this nobleman goes away to receive a kingdom for himself and then return, we read in verse 13, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. A mina is worth about four months' wages. And I think when, Jesus, when the text says he called ten servants and gave them ten minas, I think it means he gave each of them one mina. 
Not only that, but we can understand that by giving each of the servants 10 minas, he's giving them an opportunity. I mean, think about the picture. The nobleman is not king yet, but he does have servants. And so when he calls the servants to himself and he gives them each a bit of his own money, saying to them, do business, invest this, see what you can do with this, I'm going to go off and receive a kingdom, Lord willing, and come back as king, what he's saying to them is you have an opportunity. If, if you're faithful in this little bit that I've given you, when I come back, you'll not be servants of a nobleman, you'll be servants of a king. And I can give you many more, greater responsibilities. The idea then is be faithful in little, and later you can be faithful in much more. Now, I will say as a quick aside here, there's a temptation for us, I think, to conflate this parable with a similar parable that's better known in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Now, remember the parable of the talents. Jesus uh, gives three individuals different talents, right? To one five, to one, uh, to one ten, to one five, to one one. Um, a talent is about 60 times the value of a mina, and the man in that story was a businessman, not somebody going off to receive a kingdom. So although there's a bit of parallel in the stories, a bit of overlap in the stories, I do think these are two different parables. So we get the idea in verse 13, then the servants have been told, here's some money, use it wisely, you're faithful little, you can be faithful in much upon return. But we're also told another dynamic at verse 14. In verse 14 we're told, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, the reason that I told you the story about Archelaus is because verse 14 sounds a lot like that setting, doesn't it? Now, that would have been a news that all of them lived through. So when Jesus says there was a delegation sent on behalf of the people who did not want this man to reign over them, they would have thought, we know exactly what that's like. That's exactly what we did with Archelaus, and we succeeded. So you have then this picture, 10 servants being told by the nobleman, serve me, be faithful while I'm gone, in the midst of a people who hate the nobleman and do not want him to be king. This, I think, is setting for us the stage of what Jesus is making clear is true for us. In the parable, the servants represent you and me, individuals who are servants of Jesus Christ, awaiting his return when he will come and demonstrate his kingdom. And not unlike the story here, we live in the midst of a world where we are surrounded by people who hate our king. And yet, we are called to be faithful to our king as we await his return. You and I, like them, have been given gifts and abilities and responsibilities. And like them, we should think this is an opportunity for us to be faithful in little so that upon the king's return, upon Christ's return, we may be enabled to be faithful with much. Now, my question to you is, is this how we think about our lives? Do you think of yourself as a servant of Christ, being given responsibilities by him with which we are to be faithful as we await his return? My guess is our default thinking is not to think of our lives that way. Rather, we ask questions like, what do I want to do? Whom do I want to marry? 
how do I want to spend my time and money? Where do I want to live? I think when we put ourselves in this setting, those questions are shown to be fundamentally wrong. The better question is, what do I want to do in light of the fact that I am a servant of Christ and called to be faithful to Him? What can I do that will demonstrate my faithfulness to Christ most clearly? Whom shall I marry that will demonstrate my faithful obedience to Christ most clearly? Where should I live that would enable me to demonstrate my faithfulness to Christ most clearly? And instead of saying, how do I want to spend my money and my time? A better question would be, how do I want to spend his money and the time he's given to me in order to show myself to be a faithful servant to Christ? As individuals, we are given an opportunity by being given responsibilities to our king who is coming back. And as a church who's been given the task of the Great Commission to make sure that others are made disciples, we evangelize, we bring them in, we baptize them, and in the context of a local church where they can have oversight and accountability and discipline and love and care, we teach them to obey all that Christ commands even to the end of this age, to the ends of the earth. The question we should ask ourselves is, Am I, as a servant of Christ, part of the church, which is given that responsibility, am I faithfully laboring to ensure that we're moving forward in obedience to Christ's command? And so one of the ways that we need to be evaluating our lives is just put yourself right in the story. It, it makes clear sense here, doesn't it? I mean, if this were literally us, we were servants and a nobleman said, I'm about to go, Lord willing, and become king and come back. And if you're faithful in this little bit, you're going to be faithful with much more when I come back as king. Good grief, I think we would think twice about what we do with that little bit that our master has given us. Well, that really is our reality. I know it, it sometimes doesn't feel like it because we, we don't see Christ in the same way that they had this conversation with our nobleman. But this is our reality. Christ is gone and he is coming back. And when he comes back, he'll reign as king. Which brings us to our third point. At Christ's return, we'll give an account to him. At Christ's return, we'll give an account to him. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here because this point necessarily leads to the fourth and final point of the sermon. And it really needs the point, but I, I do just want to make this point because it's made in the text. In verse 15, we read, When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So in the story, the nobleman's successful. He goes away to a far country. He is indeed granted the right to reign. When he comes back, he's no longer simply a nobleman. He is coming back as the king of this territory. And the first thing he does when he comes back, is he calls his servants to give an account. He'd given each of them a little bit of his money, each of them a mena. Have they been faithful? What have they done? Each of them is called to give an account. Now, I know that when we read a parable, it's not the case that we can press every detail of a parable. And we may be wondering, we may say to ourselves, well, in verse 15, it's fair. The servants in this story are called to give an account the king now when he returns but it's the same thing really true with us but if we look at other places in the bible the bible continually uses its language for example a verse that we as pastors 
talk about often, Hebrews 13, 17, a text that says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. For pastors, one of the things that we're going to have to do at the return of Christ is give an account for how we've overseen the souls of those individuals the Lord has put under our care. That's one reason, I'll just say practically speaking, that's one reason why we practice church membership. For us, as pastors, if we're going to have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ one day, one of the big questions we have in our minds is, for whom am I going to give an account? I don't think it's every individual who visits, even who visits faithfully. I think it's everyone who officially says, I'm putting myself under your oversight and care. At Cornerstone, we call that membership. But that's not the only text. It's not as if pastors alone will give an account to Jesus for how we faithfully executed the orders he's given us in his absence. Other verses say the same thing. For example, Romans 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Now, we might be tempted to think, ah, he mentioned evil. This is a judgment of unbelievers. But, but the fact that he mentions that we might be, receive what we've done, whether good, the idea of being blessed or for having done good shows clearly this text is not merely talking about unbelievers. It's telling us that all of us, believers included, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that as believers, you and I fear that one day we might stand before Christ in judgment and be condemned. Our end times judgment has already been pronounced. If we're in Christ by faith, Paul can say to us in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And John will tell us in John 5, 24, for the one who believes does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So as believers, we do not appear before the judgment seat of Christ to see if we will be condemned, but we do indeed appear before Christ in order to give an account for how we have been faithful with responsibilities that he has given to us. He does not give us the gifts and give us orders as his servants awaiting his return merely so that we might think, oh, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't do it. He gives us the responsibilities before us so that we might be indeed responsible, understanding that we will give an account to our king upon his return. And this then brings us to our fourth and final point. Those who are faithful will be rewarded, and those who aren't will be judged. Those who are faithful will be rewarded, and those who aren't will be judged. Now, what we're going to find in the text is that when Jesus calls the servants to himself, he calls three of them. We mentioned at the beginning there were ten. I think what's going on is the three that are told about in the parable represent the ten. In other words, he could tell the parable where he had one, and then two, and then three, all the way down through number ten. And we see the interaction of all of them with their master. But, but that's needless, right? He gives us three, and those three represent what the master's, the king's conversation with all of his servants looked like. But let's look at what happens, first of all, with the first two servants, verses 16 through 19. 
So in verse 15, we read, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Verse 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mena has made 10 menas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mena has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. These servants, these first two servants, had each taken the mena that the nobleman had given them and had turned, the first one had made a thousand percent profit. I mean, that's incredible to take one mena and turn it into 10. Just to put it in our language, to take $1 and turn it into $10, or $10 turn it into 100, or 100 turn it into 1,000, right? A thousand percent increase. The, the second one had seen a 500 percent increase. He had turned the one into five. It was, uh, it was an impressive, or five more minutes. It was an impressive uh, investment that the individual had made. And each of these servants had done this for the nobleman before he became king. So now that he's king, he comes back with authority. They had been faithful in very little, and he tells them, I'm going to make you now faithful in much. I gave you a minute, and you turned it into 10 minutes. Well, guess, here's your reward. You're going to be in charge of 10 cities. I give you a minute, you turn it into five. You're going to be in charge of five cities. This is a glorious reward for the faithfulness to their king. And again, we might say, but does the Bible really speak this way about us? Are we as servants of Christ going to be able to, to be blessed, to be rewarded at the return of Christ as we've been faithful and little? And the answer is yes. Again and again and again, the scripture will say that, that as we're faithful and little, we'll be made faithful and much explicitly in Revelation chapter 11. In verse 15, we find this scene where the announcement is made, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's an announcement about Christ returning. He is returning, and he is making uh, clear his kingdom, his reign over the earth. As he returns in Revelation 11, all the elders around the throne begin to declare praise to God. And one of the things they say in verse 18 is this, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your service. The prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both great and small. The idea is repeated again and again in the Bible that we'll be blessed, that we'll have reward. For you and me, we have an opportunity if we live in faithfulness according to the responsibilities and gifts and abilities and blessings the Lord has given us, we have responsibility to store up for ourselves great reward. We saw this just a few weeks ago, and I think everybody has this category in relation to money, rightly so. We said a few weeks ago when we looked uh, at Jesus' parables and teachings on money that you and I have been given a little bit of his money. By that, I mean all your money. All the money you and I have is his money. And he gave us a little bit, each of us a little bit. And if we are faithful with that little bit, faithfully investing in his kingdom, then we all note that there can be eternal blessing. We'll store for ourselves treasure in heaven. Jesus says, the way he says it is, if you're faithful in what is not yours, treasure that belongs to another, 
then in new creation, we'll have that which is ours. Or if we are faithful in money that falls out of our purses and that moths destroy, we'll be blessed with money that moths won't destroy and that won't fall out of our purses. What Jesus is implying here in this parable is that that dynamic is not true with regard to money only. The way that you and I are faithful with all the blessings and all the gifts and all the abilities and all the responsibilities that he lays in front of us, as we are responsible with those, we can store up for ourselves eternal reward, eternal blessing. And so, that's the way that we need to think. Now, I, I don't know how all, that, all the ways to flesh that out. Certainly, we can say, if, if Joe is more blessed than Jim in eternity, and they're both believers, well, then certainly Jim is not going to be envious of Joe for all of eternity. There's obviously no envy there. But nonetheless, in the same way again, as with money and eternal blessing, there is level of reward, it seems like. We see it right here in the text. It's reflected other places as well. And so is this parable then simply a parable telling us that you and I have a great opportunity for blessing? Yes, it is that. But it's not only that. It's not only communicating to us that you and I have an enormously glorious opportunity. It's also a parable that gives us a warning, pronounces a danger. We read that as Jesus interacts with the last servant and with his enemies. After praising and rewarding the first two servants in verses 16 through 18, we read in verse 19, and he's, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 16 through 19, we read in verse 20, and another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I've kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And the master, the king, said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, let's start at the bottom. Remember, when the nobleman went off, there were citizens who did not want him to reign over him. They did not like him. They sent a delegation to campaign against him. Well, when you do that, you're playing a dangerous game. When you go and you campaign, we do not want this man to be our king. And then the Caesar or whomever says, he's king. Well, then things aren't going to be too good for you when you get back home. Because now your new king knows that you've expressed, I have no allegiance to you. Well, so it is with Christ. Those who make clear they are his enemies refusing to bow the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Upon his return, his judgment of them will be merciless. It's an uncomfortable ending to the parable, isn't it? That the king says, bring those enemies who opposed me and slaughter them before me. 
I mean, it's a terrible scene. Could you imagine dwelling at that time if this parable were being lived out in real life and we go, ah, here comes, you know, whoever. He's coming back as king, the nobleman. And individuals who stood against him being lined up one by one with a sword and being slaughtered. It's a terrible picture. But the reason it's a terrible picture in this parable is because the judgment of God on his enemies is going to be much more severe. In fact, the scripture, I've said before, the scripture pulls no punches when it talks about judgment. The scripture talks about judgment with such severity that Jesus can say it would be better for an individual not to have been born than to be born and face divine judgment. Again, we've talked about this week after week. I just want to bring it up one more time. The imagery that the Bible uses is a lake of fire where the flame is never quenched. Torment where they have no rest day or night forever and ever. In another parable, suffering that was so excruciating that the individual who was being tormented just wanted a drop of water to touch his tongue. And he had none. When Jesus Christ comes back, his enemies will be judged. This is why, week after week, and I'll say it again right now, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the bad news is you're right now under the judgment of God, awaiting the day when Jesus Christ will return and throw his enemies into a lake of fire. That's the bad news. There's good news. The word gospel means good news. And the good news is that God, who could have merely given us over to judgment, instead has sent his son to redeem a people for himself. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life of obedience that none of us have lived. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. God raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever repents of their sins and places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins and made a child of God and be reconciled to the king so that when he comes back, you'll no longer be his enemy awaiting his judgment, but his child awaiting his saving work. So if you're not a believer today, I just want to ask you this question. Why would you dare die in your sins and face the merciless wrath of King Jesus Christ when you don't have to? Please, repent and believe in him. If you don't, you will face the wrath of our King Wrath was just pictured in this parable as the enemies being slaughtered before him. But we also understand from this parable that those who face God's judgment aren't going to be only those whom we go, that person's clearly not a believer. There are also going to be some individuals who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, who profess to be his servants, but will show themselves not to be in the end. We see that in the third servant. When the king comes, and calls the third servant to give an account for what he's done. He says, I, I took your one minna, and I just hid it in a handkerchief and hid it away. And so I had it. And the reason he gives for doing so is he says, I know who you are. You're a harsh man. You're a severe man. And the man says, the king says to the man, well, I'm going to use your words against you. If you really thought I was really harsh and you really thought I was so severe, 
then why in the world would you do nothing? Wouldn't you be terrified of my judgment when I came back? Indeed, he should have been. This is like those individuals who, a number of years ago, I received a call from a family. Their son lived in Brownsville. And the dad said to me, my son's an espoused atheist. I have asked him if he'll speak to a believer in the area. And he said, yes. And so I've, I've done some research online. You're my guy. Would you go to Brownsville and meet with my son? And I said, sure. So I drove up to Brownsville. I met him one day. We were eating in a barbecue place. And I began to say, it was, it, was, it was kind of a nice, easy conversation. Because I go, we both know why we're here. Right? There's no, how am I going to work this into the gospel? We both showed up knowing how the conversation was going to go. I said, so you're an atheist? Yes. Did you ever believe the Bible? Yes. How is it, why is it then that you are an atheist? And you know what he said? <clears throat> One thing he said is, because when I read the Old Testament stories about the armies of Israel coming in, and destroying a people, just obliterating them, wiping them all out, I think I will not worship a God like that. And I was tempted to say, can I use your words against you? If you think he's that severe in judgment against his enemies, why in the world would you remain his enemy? That's what the master's doing here. That's what the king's saying here. But that's not all. The third servant actually is revealing he does not know this nobleman. He does not know the king. The only thing he thought of him, he's harsh and severe. Well, take a look at what he did with the first two servants. They, they had been faithful with one minute, turning it into ten, or, or one minute, turning it into five. And you know what he did? He didn't say, you've turned my one minute into ten. Here, I have a hundred more minutes. That would have been nice. You know what he says? Here have 10 cities over which to reign. Have five cities over which to reign. Had he actually paid attention, he would have said, good grief, this is the most gracious man I've ever seen in my life. Look how incredibly generous he is to his people. But he never saw it. He actually didn't know him. And he faced the Lord's judgment. Now, in verse 22, we, we, we see that the king refers to him lest we think to ourselves, well, maybe, maybe he was fine. The king refers to him in verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. This is much like what we find in the judgment scene in the latter chapters of the book of Matthew. When individuals, or even in Matthew 7, when individuals stand before the Lord, and Jesus says, on that day there will be many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name or do that in your name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. In other words, Jesus says what's going to happen is there are going to be a lot of people on the final day of judgment who thought that they were believers, who thought that they were children of God. In fact, they're so convinced of it, they have the audacity to argue with Jesus about it. And they're wrong. And Jesus will declare that they are wrong by calling them workers of iniquity, much the way here this third servant is called, you wicked servant. There are a number of individuals who will profess to be followers of Jesus Christ 
who will bear no fruit and give no evidence that indeed they belong to him. And on the way of judgment, on the day of judgment, they will be exposed. So, is this text saying to us, you have an opportunity? Yes, it is. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you and I have been given responsibilities and abilities and blessings as we await our king's return. When he returns, we're going to give an account to him. But if we walk in faithfulness, we can find reward that is beyond anything we've ever known. What an opportunity. And it's a warning. You and I don't really have the option of saying, "Eh, you know what, I'm content without reward. Think of it with regard to money that Jesus said earlier. When we looked earlier, I think it was Luke 16. In the parable about money, teaching about money, we were told we have an opportunity, right? You can store up for yourself treasure in heaven. That's an opportunity. But we're also told if you choose not to do that, you choose to take the Lord's money and not invest it in his kingdom and instead hold on to it, what you're going to show is that you are a lover of money and that will lead you to hell. Jesus is saying the same thing here. If you're the individual who says, you know what? I know I've been given abilities. I know I've been given responsibilities. I know I've been given resources and services that I could implore, uh, employ rather in the Lord's kingdom and the Lord's purpose and invest in the Lord's church. But I'm content not to do that. I'm fine without pursuing eternal blessing. You may actually be showing yourself not to know Christ. Because the heart of an individual that has been redeemed is, I want to do anything I can to be faithful to him. And so this morning, I want to give us a warning. Do not pursue unfaithfulness to the king who has given you so much to be faithful with in his absence. But I also want to hold out to you a glorious opportunity. Be faithful with all the resources and the time and the responsibilities that he's given you because if you are faithful, he will bless you in a way that's overwhelming. To the one who had already given 10 cities, the master threw one minute more and the others were going, what in the world? He already has so much. And the master's saying, this is just a picture of my generosity. When we see the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ shows his children on the day of judgment, we're gonna go, that's too much. It feels overwhelming. It feels too good to be true. But that's who our God is. God who overwhelms us with his generosity and grace. So, this morning, it may be that you and I have been convicted a bit. Maybe we have just kind of been coasting through life without really thinking we're servants given responsibilities waiting for the king to return to whom we give an account. We kind of have just treated it as if it's ours. What do I want to do with my life? Who do I want to marry? What do I want to do with my time, my money? Maybe we have thought of it that way. Well, if we have thought of it that way, the good news is for us is that we have an opportunity to repent this morning. As believers, we're not marked by sinless perfection. In fact, John makes very clear in his epistle, we will sin, but he also reminds us if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Believers are not marked by sinless perfection. We are marked by continual repentance. And this morning is an opportunity, if we need to, to repent. 
Perhaps this morning is an opportunity to say, Lord, just give me the grace to walk as a faithful servant. Or if you're not a believer, this morning is an opportunity to place your faith in Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to end our service giving the opportunity for those who know Christ and are members of Gospel Preaching Church's opportunity for us to visibly proclaim, we believe Jesus Christ is King and we are awaiting His return, longing to be faithful to Him in His absence. If that is your declaration, then we're going to invite you to the table this morning. As we uh, come forward, we'll, we'll take a moment of silence, and that will let the musicians get in place and pastors get in place. We'll have a, a pastor on this side for this side of the room, a pastor on that side for that side of the room, a pastor over there for that area. We'll come forward one row after another, the first followed by the second followed by the third. We'll come forward, and you'll find in these trays one stack of two cups, the top one with juice, the bottom one with bread. You'll take that one stack of two cups and return to your row in your seat to the inside. And then once we're all seated, we'll eat and drink together. Again, if you're not a believer this morning, I want to tell you, don't join us at the table. Because when we eat at the table, we're proclaiming that we're followers of Christ. If that's not you, then do not. You can either remain seated or you can just walk forward and just, just not take when you pass by. But I do not say this to you because I, want, because I want to hold you at a distance from Christ. Rather, I want to plead with you. Come to him in faith. If you want to talk to me or your neighbor after the service, we would love to talk to you about how you might know Christ. And then I'm going to encourage you to profess your faith by being baptized. This is the means that Jesus has given us to make our faith public. We're immersed in water and brought up again, showing that we've been united with one who lived, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead on the third day. And then, once you've professed faith in Christ and are a member of a gospel-preaching church, then you will come with us week by week as we visibly proclaim we are followers of our King, Jesus Christ, awaiting his return. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we prepare to come to the table.